Ezekiel chapter 17 tonight, Sunday nights through the Bible, and we come uh, tonight to Ezekiel 17. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now, and they'll get you one, and uh, uh, you'll be fairly lost without a Bible on any time, but on a Sunday night especially. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you uh, tonight. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. And so here God gives a parable and he gives a riddle in, in this chapter to Ezekiel to speak to uh, the Jewish uh, captives who are in uh, uh, Tel Aviv there in, in Babylon. The... Uh, one of the interesting things, you know, for us, and sometimes you have to just stop and try, and try is the word, try and put yourself in the shoes of the people who are uh, receiving these words. Uh, so here we sit tonight in the United States of America in the uh, year 2019, and uh, how many channels are on TV? Uh, how many books uh, can you uh, buy and, and read? Uh, how many movies are there with all kinds of plots and twists and turns and, and they've just about run out of all of the twists and turns you can take and, and it's a rehashing of the same basic story uh, so often. But in those days, uh, believe it or not, there were no uh, cell phones, there were no, uh, no entertainment, there, were no, there was no Dickens to read, uh, no Shakespeare to read, there was nothing that had them on the edge of their seats, you know, and, and, and that kind of a thing. And so what, what accomplished that in people's lives were riddles and parables. And, uh, and because there wasn't the, uh, the competition with so much from the culture and technology and entertainment, when someone would pose a riddle or pose a parable, it would immediately gain the attention of people. They didn't have that many things that were kind of put before them, and they could run their mind on that, that riddle and try and figure out what it is that's being said here. And, uh, that would, and so this would have been a tremendous way to gain uh, the attention of the people. Of course, anytime somebody uh, poses a question to us and uh, we... Uh, invest some kind of effort in solving the problem or the question on our own before we receive the answer, uh, the deeper the truth goes in our lives. And so this was a way of posing uh, a riddle. They would be trying to guess what uh, this proverb uh, or parable meant, and, uh, and then when it would finally be told, it would find an even deeper place in, in, their, uh, in their hearts. And so uh, their minds were every bit as inquisitive as ours are, uh, but not quite the opportunity and uh, availability of, of running down all of the paths that we have. So th uh, this would have really gained their interest. Now, uh, remember when, uh, when uh, Ezekiel lays out what's recorded here in chapter 17, when the, these events occur, all of this is yet future. He's speaking of it as, as a, a future event that's going to occur. We look back on it now as something that was historical where uh, Ezekiel prophesied these things and they happened. 
he is prophesying these things, and they haven't happened yet, uh, but they would happen, and that's true of all of uh, all prophecy. And so he, he's commanded to pose a riddle uh, and a parable to the house of Israel, to God's people there. And, and here's the parable, here's the riddle. And say, thus says uh, the Lord. So this is something coming from God. And, uh, and a, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions full of feathers uh, of various colors came to Lebanon. He's going to interpret it for us in a moment, but I think it's helpful, at least it is for me, and I've got the pulpit, so uh, to kind of understand what's being talked about here uh, uh, pre, you know, uh, as he's laying out the parable. And uh, so here you have a description of uh, Babylon and uh, described as being like an eagle, a large eagle, huge, powerful, colorful, and, uh, and, and it, come, it come to, uh, came to Lebanon. And uh, this great eagle took from uh, the cedar, the highest branch, and that cedar represents, as we'll see, uh, Israel. And he cropped off its topmost young twig, and he carried it to a land of trade. And this uh, speaks of God coming in and, uh, and, and taking uh, away this, the highest branch. And, it, and this speaks of, of uh, King Jehoiachin and uh, all of the rest of his nobles that were uh, among the brightest and the best in, in Israel when uh, Babylon conquered uh, uh, Israel or Judah three times. This was the second of three times. And he stripped away their king. He stripped away uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, Daniel, many, many others. And so he takes kind of the cream of the crop out of, uh, out of, uh, of Israel and then takes them captive to Babylon. Uh, and as he says here at the end of verse 4, carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. So speaking of that that devastation or that, that conquest, and then uh, the first of several captivities that took place. And then he took some of the seed of the land, and he planted it in a fertile field, and he placed it by abundant waters, and he set it like a, a willow tree, and it grew, and it became like a spreading vine of low stature. And so Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he could have been much harder on Judah than he was, but he took uh, the king, he took uh, the best of the people, uh, in the same way that uh, today, you know, the United States has uh, taken advantage uh, historically, and uh, and people have been happy to have it be so. But uh, a lot of uh, countries experience tremendous brain uh, drain uh, because we attract the you know the finest students and the finest expertise and scholars and all from all of the different countries around the world. They want to come here to uh, uh, go to university, then they want to stay here and find employment, and there's just this, this quiet recognition of, of stripping away in that way. We, do it, we don't do it the way Nebuchadnezzar did, but that's what he did. But he could have crushed them for that rebellion, but he didn't. He left them a nation, he put a vassal king in place, and he left them largely alone. If they had just uh, not rebelled a third time, uh, he would, uh, he, they, they had the seed, they had the land, they had uh, all of the natural resources. A prosperous life lay right in front of them if they would have uh, uh, just not continued to poke Nebuchadnezzar uh, in the eye. 
And, uh, and so it grew, it became a spreading vine there in verse 6 of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. And so it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth uh, shoots. And so this uh, speaking of, of the fact that uh, here is these, the branches were uh, King uh, Zedekiah was put in place, the final king uh, of Judah before they were ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and, uh, uh, and when Zedekiah was made that vassal king, initially he pledged the loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and initially was loyal uh, to that pledge. So you read about uh, Zedekiah, you read about uh, Jehoiachin and, uh, and all these different names. And it's almost like the Lord's determined that we would learn these names as Christians or students of the Bible. Sometimes you read them and you go, oh no, which Chin is this? And which Achaia is this? And all. But uh, we do find a way of uh, remembering and memorizing the names of all of our favorite characters on our TV shows and on the various rosters of the athletic teams that we're fans of and all. And so uh, God doesn't lower the bar here related to the Bible. Uh, and so there's this repetition. So that we should at least remember Zedekiah as the final king of, of Judah that, uh, that uh, you know, was in place when this, this final destruction, uh, third and final destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians occurred. But uh, here's the, the parable as it's being put out. They're trying to figure all of it out, I'm telling you ahead of time and, and ruining it for you. But th- that's, and then in verse 7, uh, in the parable, there's the introduction of another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And this is a description of, uh, of Egypt, as we'll see. And behold, this vine, speaking of uh, Zedekiah and uh, being left as that vassal king, uh, pledging to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet uh, in the midst of that, he decided to become uh, kind of treasonous toward that uh, agreement he had made with Babylon, and he decides he's going to approach another power in the ancient world, and that is uh, Egypt, and try and get Egypt to come to their help in order that they might overthrow uh, the, the Babylonians. And so this is uh, the attempt that, that he makes. Now remember when we were studying the book of uh, Jeremiah, that Jeremiah all this time was prophesying and warning Zedekiah not to do this. Is uh, is out in left field and as disobedient and as idolatrous as Zedekiah was and Judah was, they were still, I mean, they weren't living up to it, but they were still God's representatives. They were the lone worshipers, pathetically so, but they were the lone worshipers of Jehovah in the ancient world. And so uh, when he, he makes this, gives his word to Nebuchadnezzar that we're going to be faithful to this pact and you've shown us grace, we'll be loyal uh, citizens of your empire, God expected that he would keep that, uh, keep his word on that, but he didn't. He went behind everyone's back and tried to enter into a, a relationship here with with uh, Egypt. And then as it says there in the middle of verse 7, and behold, this vine bent its roots towards him, that is towards Egypt. You know how the, here's springtime, isn't it wonderful? Aren't you glad it's arrived? I love this time of the year, resurrection. But all of these plants begin to grow, all the new growth comes out. 
And if you have plants that are kind of uh, like we do, you've got some plants that are in the shade and there's only so much light and all, and you see how the plant grows out toward the sun, uh, trying to get as much light as it can. And this is the imagery of how uh, Zedekiah made that move in the imagery of being a vine uh, toward uh, Egypt, stretched its branches toward him from the garden terrace where it had been planted, uh, that he might water it. And it was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth, uh, to, uh, bring forth branches bearing fruit and to become a majestic uh, vine. And thus says uh, the Lord God uh, concerning this attempt to, uh, to find deliverance uh, in Egypt rather than turning into God, to God. Now remember, uh, Ezekiel, or rather Jeremiah, has been prophesying for fully 40 years, uh, 35 years anyway, uh, to Judah and telling them, your problem is not a political one. Uh, your problem is with God. Uh, your problem is with sin. It's not your political leaders. It's not any of those kind of things. You keep thinking it's a, you, don't have the wrong, you don't have the right alliance yet politically. That's not the issue. Your issue is you, your idolatry. You're living in disobedience to God. If you would just take and, and spend half as much time in examining your life, repenting of sin, and turning back to God as you spend in trying uh, to find political alliances to secure your future, your future would be secured. You're up against God in, in all of this. You cannot, uh, you cannot fix a spiritual wrong uh, with a physical something. And that's what they were trying to do. And we're prone to believe the same thing uh, as well. And to hear a person is not walking with God, walking in idolatry, living in obedience to God, and we begin to work all of the different kind of angles within our lives as if we can uh, fix it on that level. God will never let us be successful. He didn't let Judah be successful. We won't be successful either. We fix spiritual problems in our life by addressing them spiritually and by turning back to God and, and uh, obeying him. And uh, so the Lord said, he poses the question, will all of this movement of Judah and Zedekiah, will it thrive? Uh, will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit and leave it to wither? And all of its spring leaves will wither and no great power or uh, many people will be needed to pluck uh, it up by the roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind, Babylon was to the east of, of Israel, speaking of when the Babylonians come again and touch it, uh, it will wither in the garden, uh, in the garden terrace where it grew. And so uh, there is the parable that he, uh, he lays out uh, to them. Your plot is not going to succeed. And moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now, say now to the rebellious house. And so this, let him know this is an exhortation. Uh, do you not know what these things mean? And so how long, uh, you know, Ezekiel uh, left them to guess or to try and uh, figure it out in their own minds so that the answer would have an even greater effect, we're not told. And then the Lord said, tell them, indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem. And he took its king and its princes and he led uh, them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's uh, offspring, made a covenant with him and put him under oath and also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up, but that 
by keeping his covenant, it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt uh, that they might uh, give him horses and many people, uh, all as we've just uh, described the interpretation. Will he prosper? And so, again, Ezekiel poses the question in this room where the uh, children of Israel are, uh, leaves them to answer it for themselves in their own minds, and then uh, God uh, pr- uh, provides uh, the answer. Another question, will he who does such things escape? Uh, can he break a covenant and uh, still be uh, delivered? And then here is the answer, as I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, whom may Made him uh, king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall uh, die. So, uh, again, speaking of the fact that uh, that the, that uh, Zedekiah had made a. Uh, a pact with uh, with uh, Babylon, and he ought to have kept uh, that that uh, that pact. And so, uh, here, he is speaking of the fact that uh, in the midst of Babylon he would die, we've uh, made mention of that um, multiple times as his eyes were gouged out after seeing his sons executed and then taken captive to Babylon. Nor will Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, do anything in the war. Now, we look at it and we realize historically that Zedekiah did go and get help from the Egyptians while the Babylonians were laying siege a third time to Jerusalem. And the Egyptian army came out and to face uh, the Babylonian army in battle. And, uh, and after a, a, a very slight kind of skirmish, immediately went back behind their borders in Egypt. And so all that happened was that Babylon was just distracted for a short period of time from conquering uh, uh, Jerusalem, but then right, went right back to do it in, in earnest. But here, this prophecy is being made to these people long before those events have unfolded. Really, the marvel of, of prophecy is a witness to uh, the inspiration uh, of Scripture. And so, nor will Pharaoh, with his mighty men and his great company, do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons, Uh, speaking of Babylon, since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and, in fact, gave his hand and still did all these things, and he did not, he shall not escape. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live. Now, when God says anything, just regular. Hey, and then just says something. That's going to happen. When he's forced to say something, as I live, and he lives, no beginning, no end, uh, this is serious business. As I live, surely my oath, uh, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. Again, even though the southern kingdom of Judah was a very poor example of what it meant to worship the Lord, uh, they were uh, the best thing going at that time by and large. And so uh, they, even in this, they misrepresented him uh, as his people being those who would keep a covenant that they, that they made. And I will spread my net over them. Won't be Babylon supremely. Babylon's the instrument, but God is who uh, Judah is up against at this point. And that's a battle you can never win. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. 
I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops will fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. And so he gives them history in advance of what's going to occur. Uh, Zedekiah is still, at this point in time, going to, he's still reigning, would reign for another five years or so, I think. And so this prophecy is, is giving them that kind of a head start on knowing what is going to happen to, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, Judah, and, and Zedekiah. And so he says uh, uh, here in, uh, in, in verse uh, 22, Thus says uh, the Lord God, I will also take one of the highest branches of uh, the high cedar and set it out. And I will crop off the topmost of its uh, young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. And on the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, and it will bring forth uh, boughs and bear fruit, and will be a majestic cedar. Under it shall dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches, uh, they shall uh, dwell. And so here is a parable that God gives them. Uh, the, 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 the other parable and, and, uh, and uh, kind of uh, dismal, this is something that infuses a little bit of hope into the listeners, into uh, the, the children of Israel. And it, it's the, the prophecy here is of Israel's future uh, prosperity, not only a future prosperity for them, but a future prominence uh, in the world and, uh, and all of this He's, uh, God is likening uh, the eagle here, uh, taking the highest branch to uh, speaking of the Messiah. Uh, and uh, uh, Israel and, and, and specifically uh, that God would bring a Messiah into the world from uh, this uh, cedar, from uh, the Jewish people, and then most specifically from the Davidic uh, lineage, from uh, the bloodline of, of David and that this Messiah would be planted on the high mountains and a very prominent mountain and uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And then he would, uh, with, this, uh, with this branch, he would establish a kingdom in which everyone, is, as we read here, including the birds of the air, will find a place of, of peace and, and safety. Uh, the result, as he declares there in verse 24, all of the trees of the field, uh, all of the other nations will know that God has uh, done this. And so at, at, at this time that's being described, Israel will not be in their future at the mercy of, of their surrounding nations, but uh, a protection to them. Uh, this prophecy is, has not yet been fulfilled, and it, it wasn't fulfilled when Israel returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity. It awaits a future fulfillment. Jesus will fulfill it at his second coming when he returns to the world, and he will reign in what is known as the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ. He will reign from the city of Jerusalem. And uh, so it is, it is a prophecy uh, concerning uh, the, the coming of the Messiah at his second coming and establishing uh, this reign. And there are many, many verses in, in the Old Testament that refer to the Messiah as a branch. For instance, Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his uh, roots. Uh, Zechariah 3.8, uh, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, 
for they are a wondrous sign, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. And I could read others to you, but you get the idea. Uh, it's imagery that speaks of the coming uh, of, of Messiah. And, and so once again, speaking to them, but also to us, that, the, you know, the, the only hope, the, uh, the one great hope that we have uh, in, in life is not in some political solution to the problems that we face in this world, uh, but uh, the spiritual problems that are behind all of the physical, the political problems that we face today, uh, those are the things that need to be solved. Uh, otherwise, you're asking way too much of politics. It can never, ever uh, do it. The problems of the world today are spiritual uh, in nature, and uh, they will only, uh, this will only be taken care of at the second coming of Christ when he establishes his uh, millennial reign, and then that ultimately gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. When we come into chapter 18, it's a prophecy uh, that is given uh, concerning individual responsibility, and, uh, and it emphasizes personal responsibility for each and every one of us to live a life that, that pleases God and, uh, and, and not to live a life that warrants his, his judgment. I think that before we get into this, it is important to realize when, when we read this chapter, it's easy if you just kind of read it on your own and you were new to the Bible, you would think that uh, he's talking about the way of salvation. Uh, that a person is saved by being a good person and a person is judged and ends up in hell by virtue of being uh, a, a bad uh, person. And we want to be careful uh, to realize that's not what's uh, being taught here in the chapter. God's not addressing the subject of, of spiritual salvation or everlasting life, you know, that comes through putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins in this, in this chapter. Uh, the point that's being made here is the fact that every single person uh, in the world, uh, unsaved or unsaved, uh, saved or unsaved, is equally accountable to God uh, for the life that we live now, uh, and that in this life, uh, uh, completely independent of, of our eternal destination, uh, that God will judge us accordingly by the quality of life that, that we live. And so if a, a person is unsaved, uh, to live a life of rebellion toward uh, God is going to result in, in his judgment, not just in uh, the life to come, but even now uh, in, in this life. And uh, if a person is saved, then to live a life of willful disobedience uh, to God now is going to result in his, his uh, chastening within our lives. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, uh, why do you, uh, what do you mean when you use this proverb saying, uh, uh, concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So here you have a saying that was very popular in Judah at this time, and all of their rebellion, all of their sin, all of their determined disobedience to God. And uh, this was a saying that was going around. Uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. I don't know if you've ever eaten uh, uh, a cluster of, of sour grapes. Uh, just one uh, for, for the average person will do the trick for saying, no, I think we'll wait. Uh, 
and uh, come back to this. I mean, they can be very, very uh, tart. I mean, it really can get you grinding your teeth and, and uh, create quite a pucker uh, and, and a reaction on, on the mouth. Uh, this uh, proverb was an ancient proverb communicating that uh, when a father ate sour grapes, it set the children's teeth on edge. And the, uh, and the idea is that uh, the children suffer because of the decisions uh, of, their, uh, of their parents. And so uh, because of what my parents have done, because of the life that they have lived, uh, that's why um, I'm the kind of person that I am. That's why I'm living in rebellion to God. That's why I am, am a, a, an idolater, to put it in the application of how it was being used here and, and what, what God is uh, addressing. Now, there is absolutely an element of truth uh, that uh, our children are affected by uh, the, the, our deeds as, as parents and that uh, every one of us as parents, we're going to leave our children with a legacy. We will leave them with a physical legacy. We will leave them with a mental, emotional, and spiritual legacy. We will have uh, fashioned them for good or for bad uh, for in, in what is probably the most formative uh, part of their life. So there is a sense in which uh, the, the children do uh, kind of bear the consequences of uh, of the, uh, suffer the decisions uh, of, of the parents. The, and so we're all a legacy in this way. The only question is whether we're, uh, we give our children a good legacy or a bad one. The saying is it was being used in, in Ezekiel's time as it was being used by the population there uh, in Jerusalem uh, to kind of blame the prior generations for the difficulties that were going on in their lives. They were using it as an attempt to escape personal responsibility for their own wickedness, for their own life and their own idolatry, uh, as, as, I, uh, as I said. And so uh, the current population of Jerusalem was blaming all of their problems, all of the difficulties in, in their plight upon the decisions and the actions of their forefathers and, and the previous uh, generations. In other words, that uh, these dire conditions that they found themselves in had nothing to do with their own decisions, their own idolatry, their own wickedness, and all of that was uh, absolutely false, completely false. Again, remember, Jeremiah and others. Jeremiah has now prophesied to them almost 40 years, over and over and over again. Uh, God, uh, he, he confronted them with their, uh, their wickedness right up to the moment that Jerusalem was finally destroyed. And he's calling on them to repent of their sin. And, and if they did, God would restore them and God would bless them uh, once again. And so this is a dishonest kind of use of a, of a, of a, a saying that really had no, uh, it, it may be uh, true for some other group of people, but they were simply using it as an excuse uh, for uh, uh, it, blame shifting and, and trying to blame everyone else for the condition that they found themselves in. And again, their own actions and their own decision making when in fact they were completely to blame for uh, their predicament and for their uh, judgment. In verse 3, the Lord vows to get rid of this uh, particular saying, certainly in their mouths. And he says, as I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb uh, in Israel. Now, uh, this tendency, uh, this isn't something that's uh, a, a tendency just of the ancient children of Israel. I mean, this tendency uh, to blame shift and to blame everyone but myself for my circumstances and, and my situation in life 
uh, is certainly epidemic in the United States of America. Uh, if we live in a, a country that uh, we so prize victimhood at this particular point, uh, I mean, everybody is a victim of everything. Uh, as if there was no fall in the Garden of Eden. As if there was no Adam and Eve. Uh, as if somehow I can come into life and expect that life is going to be perfect for me. And when it's anything less than perfect for me, I can use that as an excuse for not becoming and being the person that I'm uh, supposed to be. It's nonsense. And uh, if you're not very good in, in this culture, if you're not very good at coming up uh, with excuses for the way that you are and why you don't change and why you aren't a better person and why you don't take responsibility uh, for your life, no worry. In this culture, just tell somebody your story and the culture will supply you with an arm's length of excuses and reasons for uh, why you are the way that you are, who you can blame other than yourself, and uh, to keep you from ever changing and becoming uh, another person. And that's what we do. Uh, The United States of America is the epicenter of blame shifting, not only today, but in all of human history. Part of it is, is is our affluence that allows for it. I mean, you go into other parts of the world where uh, you uh, get your living out of the soil. That day, what you eat, when life is hard and you're working hard and somebody comes up and whines about whatever, you're going to get a stick on the side of the head and get back there and hoe your robe, uh, buster. Uh, we're trying to eat around here. Nobody's good. But it is with the leisure, the, the, the affluence that we have and, and all, there's this kind of time that we have to, to uh, head into these kind of discussions and, then, and, and, and blame uh, victimhood and, uh, and engage in blame shifting in order to escape the responsibilities for our own uh, actions and, and, uh, and for being the person that we are and that what we are is on the basis of a series of, of uh, 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 now as adults, a series of, uh, of decisions that we have made uh, on, on our own. And this tendency to blame shift, I'm so, there's a lot of different kinds of people in this room. Uh, some of you, it would be like your last resort. Then there's others of us. It's our first resort when anything goes wrong. Some of you can't even understand. You say, I don't even know how a person could even do that. You're hyper-responsible and all. Then there's another group of people and saying, when's he going to supply me with some excuses for uh, remaining the way that I am? But if you've ever been, you know, maybe doing a little carpentry work or something, and you're driving a nail into a board and the, the hammer slips and you hit your thumb and the, the pain is excruciating, what do, you, what do some of us do? We look around for who we can blame. What are you doing standing there? If you hadn't been standing there distracting me out of the corner of my eye and, and talking to me in that way, I'd have never done it. It has absolutely nothing to do with the other person. But it just, it just fairly just leaps right, uh, right out of us. You miss a, an exit on the freeway. Well, if you hadn't been talking, I'd have never missed that exit, and we'd be, uh, now we've lost 15 minutes, and we were already 15 minutes uh, behind. And I mean, it is, it's so quick in, in all of us. You say, where in the world does all of this come from? Well, it comes from Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, that's how old it is. Uh, uh, it just has gotten a lot more traction today than, 
than in those days. And of course, an ignorance of what happened in the Garden of Eden allows this to get traction within, within our culture. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned and violated the, the loan commandment that they had been given by God, and, and God confronts them on that, how their response was, each of them, they met uh, God's confrontation with blame shifting, with excuses. Uh, Adam, wow, I mean, uh, the evidence of the fall was immediately manifest in him. He declared to God, uh, he said, the woman that you gave to me, uh, she gave me of the tree and I ate. In one short sentence, he puts himself two people removed from responsibility for what he had just done. And I like to look at it where he just says, now listen, listen, God. Uh, you and Eve, I understand, you got a lot to work out here uh, on this, uh, and I'll be standing over here, and once you get her in shape, then you'll realize I'm completely innocent in all of this. Eve wasn't much better. She immediately blamed the devil. She said, the servant deceived me, and I ate. And God said, oh, I never thought, of, never thought about that at all. And uh, uh, you're absolutely right. No, God held them both responsible uh, for what it is that that they had done. I think of King Saul in the Old Testament. I mean, when God, uh, he's such a tragic figure. God confronted him with his sin and his disobedience over and over again. And every time God confronted him, uh, he deflected it with uh, an excuse or blame shifting. The people, you didn't get here on time, Samuel, and, and all of this kind of thing. And this blame shifting and the excuses always kept him one step short of what he needed to do and was to confess personal responsibility for his sin, repent, and do the right thing. And, uh, and, uh, and it's important for us to look at our own lives here tonight and to look. I mean, if anybody rebukes us or corrects us, is, it, is the first thing out of our mouth a blame shift or some kind of an excuse? It always ends in tragedy. It always ends in bad. bad. It will end awfully uh, in, this, in this culture. And, and ultimately, it will end up where things flip so badly if the Lord were to tarry that there won't be the margins to play this kind of a nonsense game of, of playing victimhood in order to get something from other people for free, what I ought to be earning for myself. And uh, there's no longevity in that game because once everybody's playing uh, the victim, now you have nobody to victimize. And uh, so it's, it's got a short uh, shelf life, but it's in, in full bloom right now in, in our culture. I think that most of us as Christians, uh, we steer clear of this kind of thing because we realize that uh, we, uh, people do, and we, even us, we get a, uh, can get a very, very bad deal uh, in life. Uh, but when we're born again, uh, God makes us into a new creation. Don't forget that. We're not what our parents fashioned us into being. We're not what foster parents fashioned us into or uh, some educational system fashioned us into. Uh, God made us into a new creation the moment that we were uh, born again. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives now to provide us with power that uh, we've never had before, wisdom that we've never had before, counsel that we've never uh, had before, the very best in, uh, available. 
And so we ask ourselves, how in the world can I play the victim as a Christian if in the words of of Romans chapter eight, God has made me uh, more than a conqueror? How can I play uh, the victim as a Christian if God calls me his workmanship? How can I play the victim as a Christian if God has told me that what the good work that he's begun in me, he's going to bring uh, to completion? How can I play the victim as a Christian uh, when God has vowed to work all things together for good uh, in in my life. Uh, You can't uh, believe those promises and take them seriously and then walk around as a victim and blame everybody else in our lives for uh, for, uh, not being who and what God is willing to make any of us into and is making us into. Uh, Perhaps you read a couple of months ago Uh, about the adult man uh, who is now suing his parents uh, for conceiving him and giving birth to him without his consent. Imagine. (laughs) Just how they were supposed to do that is beyond me. But he has taken it to a court of law. Apparently life hasn't uh, worked out as well as he wants it to, and now he's going to sue parents. No wonder why we're not reproducing. Uh, in the West, we produce this kind of an environment and these kind of generations. I mean, it, it's uh, uh, who needs the aggravation? And of course, that's an extreme, and and we we laugh at it. And uh, and I, uh, most of us, of course, we wouldn't go there. But it really is possible to get caught up in this kind of thing in a in a life dominating way, where uh, this kind of thing really gets a grip on a person's life. And, and it can become our whole identity. We spend our whole lives blaming uh, our parents or blaming our children or blaming this thing and that thing and all. And these things can be awful. They can be horrible. But God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit has come into our lives again with a promise to even work those things together for good. He doesn't say they're good. They're not good. But he'll so overwhelm them to produce something of Christ in us that we might not otherwise uh, uh, know. And, and, but this is something that is so around us that we want to be careful that we don't begin to take this on uh, ourselves as, uh, as, as Christians. And our whole identity becomes uh, victimhood. And, uh, and even within the body of Christ, it can happen where someone gets bitter against uh, everyone who is successful. Even Christians, uh, I'm bitter against them for the victorious Christian life that they're living, and I don't seem to have that or what God has given them, but He hasn't given uh, uh, to uh, to me. And and uh, uh, the life that I would be living if only God did this or not, and comparing uh, with others. And so uh, this passage deals with a, an important subject, very very straight uh, uh, forwardly. And, and, and very, very uh, important. If I still believe as a Christian that uh, I am unendingly a, a victim of everything that's happened to me in the past, uh, it is because I haven't matured as a Christian, uh, realizing what God has brought into my life uh, at, at, at salvation, 
Uh, again, providing me with a new nature, the person of the Holy Spirit, the will to do, the power to do of God's uh, good pleasure, that these things are infinitely greater, any one of them infinitely greater than anything that we face in, in our life before we become uh, uh, Christians. And again, this isn't to minimize how difficult life uh, can be. But Christ does not save us to be victims for the rest of our lives. He says, I'm going to make you the head and not the tail. And, and so he does. So this is a terrible trap that's, that's all around us, and we certainly will want to uh, avoid it. And so the Lord uh, gives illustrations of, of how he holds each person responsible uh, for their own actions. And he says in verse 5, if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, uh, if he's not eaten on the mountains, he's not an idolater, nor lifted his eyes up uh, to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity. He's sexually uh, uh, pure, lives that way. If he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor uh, his pledge, he's honest, uh, has robbed no one by violence, uh, but has given his bread to the hungry, he's compassionate, covered the uh, naked man with clothing, if he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between uh, man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just and he shall live, says the Lord. And so the, the good man, uh, this, is, uh, this is what he's going to get from God on a, on a purely uh, physical kind of, of level. The, uh, life is uh, God himself and life itself is built to reward this kind of person. And then he takes uh, the evil son of such a father, the evil son uh, of, uh, of, of a righteous father as an, uh, as an example. And, uh, and declares that he will bear his own judgment independent of, of his father. And so if this man, he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, uh, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idols or sexually uh, or committed abomination, if he has uh, exacted usury or taken increase, shall he live? He shall not live. Uh, If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon uh, him. And and so he is personally responsible for the life that he has chosen to live uh, independent of anything that uh, his his, uh, parents or anyone, his, you know, he's not bearing the, the sins of his father. He has the the, the, what is required uh, to live a godly life. He chooses not to. God says, I hold him responsible uh, uh, for that. If, however, uh, this uh, evil father, he begets a son and uh, who sees all of the sins which his father has done uh, and considers, I, I, I think I, I've underlined in my Bible here, uh, 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 he, who sees all and then and considers. So uh, if, you ha- he, if this evil uh, father begets a son who witnesses all of this evil in his, in his father's uh, uh, life, all the sins which his father's done and considers but does not do uh, likewise. Uh, in my childhood, uh, almost everything I learned in my childhood 
uh, from significant people around me was what not to do. And it's its own lesson. And so, yeah, adults do what they do and they do all kinds of goofy things and just because they do them doesn't mean that I, I am then free as a child to say that I accept those as definitions of right and wrong and how to behave uh, myself. And so if we, if we look at our parents, and I'm raised by evil parents, I wasn't, but I, wasn't, I was raised with a certain kind of dynamics in there that could result in some blame shifting if we wanted to go there. But when you, so often when we, we look at things and say, well, this is the kind of parents that I had, they did this and they did that, but, if I, but I have a responsibility to look at that and learn from it from the other angle. And, and to, to vow uh, that I never want to be that person. I never want to be the person that my mother was or my father was or in these little areas within, within their lives. We have a responsibility to learn from the good things that our parents taught us and to learn from the bad things. We can't hold them responsible for us not uh, taking responsibility for uh, understanding when they were wrong and then not choosing to emulate that in, in our adult life. That's just somebody who is either a very, very uh, emotionally and, and mentally, certainly spiritually uh, immature, uh, but typically not being honest at all. Now, you, you watch and then you consider, and we have responsibility, even as, as youth, uh, to accept or reject the examples that are, are, are before us. And he who has, not eaten, uh, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes uh, to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, uh, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, he has, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not uh, received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Uh, king Josiah was one of these kings. Uh, Hezek, king Hezekiah was one of these kings. And you, you look in the, the series of kings in, in the history of Judah, there were uh, bad kings that followed good kings and good kings that that followed bad kings, and God held all of them responsible for the life that they chose uh, to live. And as for his father, here, his father unlike him, uh, as for his father, the wicked father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. And yet you say, why should the son uh, not bear uh, the guilt of, of the father? Uh, this is amazing. They don't like the fact that God is using Ezekiel to take their excuse away. It's just like, it's so ABC simple. Hey, wait a second. Uh, we like that excuse. Why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? We're getting away with murder under that, that, uh, that proverb. Uh, and then because the son has done what is lawful and right 
and has kept all my statutes and observed them, and uh, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son who uh, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man uh, turns uh, from all of his sins which he has committed, and here you have a person that's living a wicked life. Uh, boy, uh, does God allow you turns, as the old saying goes. Yes, he does. You don't have to continue in that. God will give a, a, a fresh start. And so here you've got a wicked man. He turns from his sins, which he committed. Now he begins to keep God's statutes and does what is lawful and right. And uh, he shall surely live. Uh, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because uh, of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Uh, do I have any pleasure at all in uh, that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not what, that he should turn from his ways and live? And so God allows people to turn. What matters right now is not what I used to be. What matters is what am I right now? And God holds me responsible for that. I could have been great in my past and living wickedly now. Now, or wicked in my past and living righteously now. Uh, and we live in the now. And that's what God holds us responsible for. Uh, the wicked can turn and be dealt uh, and, and change their uh, direction. And then here's a warning against backsliding, the other, the other scenario. But when a righteous man uh, turns away from his righteousness and he uh, then begins, commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, uh, shall he live kind of on the basis of the righteous life he used to live, though he's a wicked man now? All the righteousness which he has done, uh, shall it not be remembered because of uh, the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Again, what we are is what we are right now and that's what God holds us responsible for. And then uh, they, uh, they declare, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. That's not fair. This is like... That is like, where that's like victimhood 101. Uh, the way of the Lord is not fair. I mean, the only thing worse than seeing a, a, a two-year-old throw a tantrum in a supermarket is to watch uh, 25-year-olds or 85-year-olds uh, do the same thing. And the Lord has a response to this. He's not going to play the game and, and come down and pander to them. He said, here now, O house of Israel, uh, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? Uh, I uh, give, uh, I, I, I deal with people uh, the, the, uh, according to the life that they, they live and hold them responsible for that. That's what's fair, not the game you're playing. And when the righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is, uh, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. And again, when a wicked man turns from the wickedness which he committed and does uh, what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers 
and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live and not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, it is, is it not uh, my ways which are, uh, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? It's so great. You know, you want clarity. Uh, if you don't like clarity, you're, you're gonna have a tough time with God. Uh, because he is the master of, of unmistakable uh, clarity. And therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his uh, ways. And uh, as says the Lord God, repent. And here's your problem. Not making excuses for your life. Your issue here is just confess your sin, repent, live the life you're supposed to that God lays out in, in the book and you'll be fine. Uh, that's the answer. Not finding excuses or blame shifting. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. This ends in ruin protecting sin in my life, blaming everybody else, it ends in ruin. Because sin doesn't care uh, how we protect it. Sin is always working toward our uh, spiritual death and then our physical uh, death. This is, a, this is a, 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 a tragedy that is unfolding before us uh, in, in our, our culture. He said, cast away from you all of the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Uh, be born again, and uh, one that's controlled by the Lord. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, uh, says uh, the Lord God. Therefore, turn and uh, live. Uh, beautiful here is the Lord speaks and, and, uh, and declares to them, uh, you know, the, I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, uh, 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 the, in the one who dies, uh, therefore turn and live. Sometimes you hear people say, and I'm, I'm just about done, so relax. But sometimes you'll hear people say, I just couldn't believe in a God, uh, in, a, in a God who casts people into hell. And uh, how could a God of love cast people into hell? And it, it, again, it's the ultimate blame shift. It is, it, is as if, it is as if God is the only one that is involved in where people spend their eternity, as opposed to every single person being responsible for we, where we end up in eternity. God says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's his will. That's his desire for every single person. And if a person ends up in hell and ends up in judgment, and they will do so in violation of the will of God, the nature of God, not the nature of God, but his desire for an individual's life. But here you see the same thing, and this is one of the things that I think we're up against as Christians as we evangelize and as we uh, try to share the gospel with people. The victim uh, mentality, the victim culture is so strong within, within our culture, they will not even countenance the idea of a God who would hold an individual responsible for their own decisions and their own decision concerning their eternity. 
And it is this victimhood mentality that is absolutely gone amok. And the reason it's so dangerous is is that if I buy into that and I believe that, that if I end up in hell, I am not only a, a victim of other people. I mean, that's vac- victimhood on its own level. But now w- when you are going to blame God for ending up in hell, that's taking victim status to you can't take it any higher than that. And there's a world of people uh, that reject God on, on this, this very basis. And it's nonsense, of course, and God is clear about it, and he needs to be clear about it as we see what a grip it can get on, on, a, human, on a human heart. Every single human being in this world is responsible for the life that we live, and we are responsible for where we end up in eternity because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but... <clears throat> but have everlasting life. Every person that wants to can be saved, be forgiven, become a new creation, and have reservations for heaven on top of so many other things uh, uh, forever and, and ever. And because of Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection, and the existence of that gospel in human history, it makes every person uh, individually responsible for where we end up in eternity and not God. Don't buy into the blame shifting that is all around us. I'm done. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll have the worship team close us up in, in, the, in a worship song. If you're not a Christian tonight, uh, we would love to answer your questions and pray with you uh, to put your trust in the Lord and be born again tonight. We'll be up in front immediately after uh, the service.